0: Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And as you're turning there, please um, pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your love displayed to us in the cross of Christ, in all your works in your words, in your character. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this word, this song, this psalm, this prayer through your servant David. Lord, as we look at your word, we pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive it, to understand it, that we may give praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Read along with me in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as a day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. See how powerful and deep this psalm is, praising God, and, and throughout church history, there there have been several. Numerous, noteworthy comments on this psalm. Ibn Ezra, a Jewish rabbi in the Middle Ages, declared that Psalm 139 is the crown of all the psalms being unequaled in the five books of the Psalter. And many pastors and preachers and theologians have, have copied that. This is the crown of the Psalter. And we can see why as we read it. In his devotional commentary, uh, Awake, O harp, Dr. Will Varner says, Psalm 139 is one of the most profound meditations on God in the entire Psalter, yea, the entire Bible. The psalmist glories in the majesty and the perfections of the one who is the God of Israel and of the whole earth. But he also marvels in fear at his character. And yet it is at that very point that some treatments of this psalm fall short. Too often it is theologized and removed from its context to become a textbook treatment of the omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence of God. This treatment falls short of what the author is saying. He's not saying that these rich uh, truths of theology and of, of the highness and the exaltedness and the omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence of God are not important, um, we study theology. We, we study systematic theology. We teach it. We um, yearn for knowledge to know more and more about God. But he goes on to, to say these three omni-words are not the psalmist's words, but are modern theological terms. It is not wrong to invent such words to convey biblical truths, but the danger in doing so is that when we speak about God in such terms... We turn him into an object to be analyzed and theorized about rather than the Lord to be worshiped and served. Theology sought after and understood just for the sake of knowing is not true theology. We miss the point. But yet we, we need to know, we need to seek after, we need to yearn for God, we need to study, we need to learn more and more about God. We spend our lives learning about God, and we'll spend all of eternity learning about God. But what do we do with that knowledge? Our theology ought to be assimilated, it ought to be practiced, because there's a point to it. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul Says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. There is a sense that we can easily fall into the trap of of gaining more and more knowledge to to puff ourselves up to to uh, to increase our pride, so that we can. We can be praised in the, in the sight of men. But we need knowledge. We, we can't do away with knowledge. We just need to know what to do with the knowledge, how, how to apply it. A.W. Tozer has often been quoted as saying, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he, in his deep heart, conceives God to be like. So what is God like? We gather for worship, and yet our worship will never go higher than our view of God. We, we seek uh, to, to be spiritual, to be devoted to Christ. But our spirituality and our devotion will never go deeper than our understanding of God. And we strive to be Christ-like, but our growth in Christ-likeness will never grow greater than our knowledge of him. But in our pursuit of the knowledge of God, how do we keep from getting puffed up? How do we guard against pride, self-righteousness, and a cold orthodoxy? And as your bulletin said, how, how do we practice the knowledge of God? How, how do we apply it? What do we do with that knowledge once we gain it? The Puritans were, were big on the practice of meditation, of mulling over, of, of, of putting into practice the scriptures, of applying them to their lives, of praying the scriptures, of, of practicing the presence of God which when we we say that term, practicing the presence of God, it's kind of like practicing the presence of the sun or practicing the presence of air. It it, it kind of twists our minds and, and it's hard to understand, but yet God is always with us and he's always there. And we need to practice what we know about him and have Um, what the Puritans also said uh, to live life quorum Deo before the face of God. J.R. Packer um, defines meditation as the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It is an activity of holy thought Consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. Its purpose is to clear one's mental and spiritual vision of God and to let His truth make its full and proper impact on one's mind and heart. This is what we are to do with the Word of God. This is what we are to do with. These rich passages of theology and these high views of God and his attributes that we find in the scriptures. And then what we find here in this psalm, Dr. Alan Ross in his commentary says, This psalm is certainly a holy meditation on doctrine, but as a meditation, it is more than theological reflection. It is an application of doctrine to life. The psalm not only probes the nature of God, but also shows the significance of it all to the way we live. In his exposition on prayer in the whole entire Bible, um, probably my favorite um, professor, one of the holiest men I have ever met, Dr. Jim Roscoff, he says of this psalm, all of the psalm is a prayer. It opens with God's probing knowledge of the believer's every thought and ends with an invitation that God search him and lead him in his eternal way. It reaches to the depth of his heart, the height of heaven, the span of the sun's rays traverse, the remote distance of the sea, the hiddenness of the womb, the book God keeps on high, and the way that leads to eternity. This is what David is doing here. In this psalm, everything he knows about God, everything he has learned about God, everything he has read about God in the law, he is meditating upon and bathing his soul and his heart and his mind in, and he is praying it back to God. Exalting the glories of God, the attributes of God. And as we read this, though though we don't know, it doesn't say where David is in his life or the time of his life. But as we read it, we can can assume that it's at a low point. We can assume that um, it's perhaps when he was on the run. We can assume that it's at a time when he just needs to not only proclaim the, the truth of God's attributes, to himself, But he needs to affirm himself of who God is. He needs to remind himself of God's attributes. And this is what he does in this psalm. And as he, as he pours out his soul towards God, we see four aspects of his prayer. Four aspects of this prayer in which he not only proclaims an attribute of God, but more importantly affirms an aspect of God's relationship with him. So we could say that this psalm reveals four aspects of our relationship with God. But more precisely, this psalm reveals four affirmations of our relationship with God. Affirmation number one. You know me. You know me. Verses one to six. As David exalts the omniscience of God. I cannot attain it. In these six verses, David exclaims the knowledge of God, his his omniscience of knowing all things, but more importantly that he knows him and he knows him first. He proclaims, you know me first because you have searched me and you search me out. This word you have searched me in the, in the past tense. It, it, it's, it's a Hebrew term that, that is used in other parts of the Bible to scour the earth, to, to mine the depths of the earth in search of gold, in search of precious metals. It is, it is used of, of Caleb and Joshua as they enter into the land, the promised land, to recon the land, to search it out And David proclaims that God has searched him out. All the minute details of his life. Second, he says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Though though God knows all things completely and he knows us and he knows David. There's a sense when he, he is actively discerning. Our thoughts. He actively discerns what we are thinking. Have you ever gone to a mall or a park or or a public place and and you just sit there and you you people watch? I I, kind of enjoy, I I like to observe things and observe people. And um, sometimes my attitude isn't in the right place when I do that. But people are interesting. And people are funny, and you see people doing funny and interesting things in the mall or in public places. And sometimes you look at them and their behaviors and their interactions with other people, and you're like, I wonder what that guy is thinking. I wonder what that lady is thinking as she's arguing with her husband or her children. And you kind of piece the puzzles together in your mind of the conversation that's probably going on. Or even if they're alone and they're doing something silly, you kind of piece, what is this person thinking? And there is a sense that you're discerning their thoughts from afar as you look at them and you discern their behaviors and, and their actions and what they're doing. And, and this is what David is talking about here, that, that God is, is, is discerning his thoughts from afar. And it's one thing for us to go to a public place and discern others' thoughts from afar, but God is in the heavens, and he looks down on not just us, not just me, but all of humanity and every person, and he discerns all of their thoughts and all of their behaviors. Furthermore, he he not only has searched us, he not only discerns our thoughts and behaviors, but he searches us out. He verse 3 says you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways whatever i am doing wherever i go um my pathways he he searches it out and, the, and this term is the term for for winnowing that we find in other places of the bible that that middle eastern um practice of harvesting grain and, and you you gather up all your grain and you you thresh it and you put it in this pile and then you take it to a high place where there is a a wind blowing and you take a pitchfork or some or shovel throw it up in the air and the chaff the lighter chaff that is useless that you do not want is blown away by the wind and the heavier useful grain that you do want falls to the ground and and there's this sense of of separating meticulously the 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 small grains the the little precious grains And, and and this is what what david is saying here is that god winnows out my path and my lying down my actions my thoughts my intentions He's acquainted with all of my ways, meaning my routine behaviors and quirks. He knows them. He knows how I act. And, and, and we know this about ourselves and about people around us, that we all have routine behaviors and quirks. I, I, I think about the way I wash my hands, and, he, and he, even my, my children, they, they come in, and, and we all have certain ways, routine ways, that, that become habit over time, and and we don't even realize we do them, but as I always wash my hands and, and, and then immediately wipe my face and, and then dry off my hands, there, there's a certain way. And in having little children and raising them up, I see that they imitate me and they do the exact same thing as I am doing. And I realize how much of a quirk that is to me um, that they just copy and emulate that. But we all have ways in which we do things. The way we enter and start our car and we go in and sometimes I think like I'm kind of like an Air Force pilot or something with all the gadgets that we have. And they keep on multiplying and you come in and you set your phone down and you set your GPS and you, you know, click on the the radio or the climate control and then adjust the seat the mirrors and you're doing like a pre-flight check and and over time even though we have many things that we do and we all have our 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 routine that, that it becomes habit and we almost don't even know it the idioms and the sayings we use but David says that Lord, you know this about me. You are acquainted with all my ways, all my quirks, all my routine behaviors, all my mannerisms, all the silly little idioms and sayings I use. You know them. Spurgeon comments on this. He says, searching ordinarily implies a measure of ignorance, which is removed by observation. Of course, this is not the case with the Lord, but the meaning of the psalmist is that the Lord knows us as thoroughly as if he had examined us minutely and had pried into the most secret corners of our being. This infallible knowledge has always existed. Thou hast searched me, and it continues unto this day, since God cannot forget that which he has once known. There never was a time in which we were unknown to God, and there never will be a moment in which we shall be beyond his observation. He has searched us, and he is searching us. He discerns our thoughts from afar. He is acquainted with all our ways. So he knows us because he has searched us, and he searches us out. Second, he knows us because... He knows our desires, our intentions, and the choices we make. Verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. This, This word hem me in. Is, is a military word of, of used of surrounding an enemy, of laying siege to a fortress, of surrounding your, uh, the fortresses and, and, and the opposition, of hemming them in. But here it speaks of God's knowledge. How, how is God hemming us in? How does he hem David in with his knowledge? This is, this is likened to a chess master, like a chess master playing against a novice, always thinking 8, 10, 20 moves ahead. God knows us so well that he knows the decisions we will make and the actions we will take in every possible situation. And so he providentially orders our life and our circumstances to move us into the position he would have us go. There are often times in our lives when we we throw up our hands or or, or we're able to take a step back and and gain perspective on ourselves and our lives. and, And we might ask the questions, why do I live where I live? Why why am I here in this city? How how did I get here? How why do I live in this community in my neighborhood with the neighbors that I have? Why do I have the job I have? What led me to it? What led me to my spouse or my neighbors or my friends? What led me to this trial, this challenge? What led me to these blessings? And oftentimes we can beat ourselves up over the decisions, the poor decisions we've made. Or we can puff ourselves up over the good decisions we've made. But ultimately, if we have the right perspective and a high view of God and an understanding of who God is, we can look back at those decision points in our lives and we can see that God was guiding us, that he was moving us into position, into the exact place in which he wanted us to be. He hemmed us in. And he placed us where we are at. Third, he knows us because he knows all things completely and comprehensively. He's not just trying to figure it out, but knowledge, uh, it originates with God. And, and he's not, not like us, but only higher as, as he knows so many things. But he knows all things David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. He knows everything comprehensively and completely. He is categorically separate and beyond me. Isaiah speaks of this knowledge as he confronts the Israelites in their worry and fear in Isaiah chapter forty. And you can turn with me there, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 to 18. And here in this passage, Isaiah begins to comfort the Israelites as they are about to be besieged by the Assyrians, and they're about to be taken over, and they're about to be taken into captivity. And the Lord speaking through Isaiah said, "'Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord?' Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? God is, in a sense, through Isaiah, confronting their worries, their fears, their anxieties about all the nations all around them, all the alliances, all the doom and gloom about, that is about to happen to them. And he's, he's, in a sense, saying, what do you know? What do you know about your circumstances and your situations? What need do you have to worry Because I am in control and I know more than you. I know all things. Affirmation number one God knows us. Affirmation number two He is always with us. He knows us and He is with us. David exalts his omnipresence here in verses 7 to 12. And when he says, Where shall I go from your spirit? is always with me. He's exalting his omnipresence, but he places it in, in the personal aspect. And depending on who you are and your relationship with God, as we walk through these uh, attributes of God's omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, depending on your relationship with God, this ought to, this ought to either bring great comfort and peace of mind, or it should bring great fear and terror and dread, knowing that the God of the universe not only knows you, but he is always with you. In David's sense, though, he is affirming his relationship with God, his steadfast love in the fact that, that God is with him. Even in the farthest locations, wherever I could flee to, he is with me. Heaven or Sheol, high or low, as high as I can go or as low as I can go, he is with me. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of, sea, of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, saying, saying if, if I were to somehow rise with the sun, and, and not just speaking of as far as the east is to as far as the west is, but, but saying, if, if I were to even rise with the sun as, as fast as the speed of light, even there, you are with me. So even as far as I can go to the east or as fast as I can go with the, with the light, you are there. You are always with me. As far west as I can go to the sea, speaking of the, the, the great sea, the Mediterranean Sea, as far as I can go, even into the depths of the sea, you are there. For most of us, this, this ought to bring to mind our, our, our favorite runaway prophet, Jonah, that thought that he could run from the presence of God, and not just the presence of God, but from the calling of God, the specific and distinct calling of God on his life, saying, these people are too murderous, they're too hateful, these Ninevites, I don't want nothing to do with them, they won't receive your message, they won't repent, they won't follow you, and they're worth um, nothing. They're worthy of being cast into Sheol, into the depths of hell, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go to them. I don't care. I'm going to go the other way. And we see that and we laugh. We see how silly it is. But oftentimes, that is us on a much smaller scale. When we look at the commands of God and say, you know, I'm not going to love that person. I'm not going to reach out to them. I'm not going to be their friend. I'm not going to associate with them. I am not going to share the gospel with that person. I am not going to reach out to my neighbors. No, I am going into my house. I'm going to shut the garage door. I'm going to turn on the TV, and I'm going to do what I want to do. And we think we can run away from the presence of God, from the calling of God on our lives. And, and, and we don't think much of it because it's not as a great calling as Jonah or any of the other prophets or the apostles, but it is a calling nonetheless to be salt and light in this world. And we cannot flee from the presence of God. He is with us wherever we go. He is with us even in the most obscure conditions. Wherever we could hide, he is with me. Verse 11 and 12, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as a day for darkness is as light with you. John Calvin says in his commentary on on these verses, if anyone should think it a very unnecessary observation to say that as respects God, there is no difference between light and darkness. It is enough to remind him that all observation proves with what reluctance and extreme difficulty men are brought to come forward openly and unreservedly into God's presence. In words, we all grant that God is omniscient. Meanwhile, what none would ever think of controverting, we secretly make no account of whatsoever insofar as we make no scruple of mocking God and lack even that reverence of him which we extend to one of our fellow creatures. We are ashamed to let men know and witness our delinquencies, but we are as indifferent to what God may think of us as if our sins were covered and veiled from his inspection. What what Calvin is saying is that there are many things that we say, think, and do Many behaviors, many habits that we would not do in the presence of other people. Yet we do them before the presence of the Almighty God of creation all the time. And we think nothing of it. He knows us completely, He is with us. We cannot hide from Him. Jesus explains this even better in John three. We oftentimes read John three sixteen and and we we stop, but we should continue, always. In John three nineteen to twenty one, Jesus says, "Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil." For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If We understand who God is and what he is like. We understand not only that he is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, But we also understand his character, that he is merciful and gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We will not only be careful about what we do around other people, but we will be quick to come to him for forgiveness. He is is with us wherever we go, as far as we go, as high as we go, as low as we go, however we in darkness and light. We think of our our, our sense of guilt and and oftentimes this is shown when when, when we try to hide from the presence of God. We we, we try to cover up our sin as Adam did in the garden and it's it's useless. Nothing is beyond his observation. Adam thought he could hide from God, thought he could cover up his guilt and shame, but God knew the most intimate details about him. Things which Adam did not know himself. He knows us. He is with us. Always. Affirmation number three. He created us and decreed our lives. Verses 13 to 18. For you formed my inward parts. you shaped and fashioned me. You set me apart like an artisan, like a craftsman, like an artist. You wove me together. You observed and ordained my creation, my life, and the days of my life. In, in, in your book, all of them were written as, as God tells Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. David's saying, you, you not only know everything about me, you, you are not only with me wherever you go, but you created me intimately, secretly, every little cell, every tendon, every muscle, every fiber, every nerve. You fashioned me. And you ordain the days of my life. You you set me on a course. You are wonderful, and and he he goes over these omnis, this this rich theology about the attributes of God that his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, and. and and he gets to this point in the psalm and he is just overwhelmed with the glory of God. And, and not just who God is and what he has done and what he has spoken and his nature and his character. But his nature and his His character in relation to David. This, this is personal. This is theology that is personal. This is, this is David's relationship to God and he is overwhelmed. And he just has to stop. In verses 17 and 18, it and just has to stop for this, this doxological interlude, this, this interlude of praise where he comes and he's saying, God, you are worthy of my praise. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, there are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. That, that's the amazing thing. As amazing as God is and what he knows and what he has done and his, his relationship with me and what he knows, even the, the wicked and the evil things about me, I awake and I am still with you. He's still there. And so David goes over the preciousness of God's thoughts, the, the plenitude of God's thoughts, the presence of God himself. It, these are more than the sand of the sea and the oceans he, he gets down to the the minute details of every thought of god and he's saying it's too much i i can't even count them all i i can't even begin to fathom and this is what what prayer does to us it, it draws us close to god we, we we cannot twist god's arm in prayer we cannot make him do anything that he has already ha- hasn't already ordained to do, but but what we are doing in prayer is, is we pray to god and and especially as we pray his scriptures and as we affirm attributes of him and his nature and his character it is drawing us close to god and is drawing us up into praise and is drawing us up to proclaim his glories and and not just with god but with one another as we pray for one another we are focusing on god and as we all focus it uh, on god it's it's as if um spokes and several spokes on on a wheel and and drawn towards the center of the wheel as we are drawing ourselves up towards God we draw ourselves closer to one another and and prayer is aligning our wills and our intentions and our desires towards God and it it is aligning us closer to one another and it brings us all up into the praise and the glory of God and we our, our, our minds are changed. Our heart is changed. Our, our, our wills are changed. God, in, in a sense, in our prayer is impressing his will upon us. And so we come to this point in this psalm where it, it just seems like like a break. It, it seems like the, the, the record scratches. It seems like the, the wheels are screeching around the corner. It seems like this sharp turn. But what is really happening here is, is, is David is so overwhelmed with the glory of God that, that he, his will is aligned with God and he is starting to view things as God views things. And so David affirms that God knows him. He affirms that he is with him always. He affirms that he's created and decreed his life. And fourthly, he affirms that, God, you are worthy of my allegiance. You are worthy of my loyalty, or rather, your perspective is worthy of my emulation. Your character, your holiness, your justice, your goodness. And in swearing allegiance to God, he goes on and he acknowledges the evil of mankind and their hatred of God. And he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God! O oh, men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. As, as David is aligned With God, and he sees things. He starts to see things from God's perspective, and he sees the sinfulness of man, and he sees the hatred of God in the world, and he acknowledges the evil of mankind and their hatred of God. He acknowledges the disposition of God towards the wicked, as Psalm 5 4 6 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate All evildoers, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God is angry with the wicked. He is angry with sin. He hates sin. He abhors the bloodthirsty man. He abhors the evil in this world. And so naturally... As David aligns himself with God and thoughts of God, he naturally overflows with that same hatred towards sin and evil in the world. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. There, There is a sense that we ought to be angry of the evil in the world. We ought to be angry of evildoers. We ought to even be angry at our own sin. Yet yeah, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. There, there is a righteous anger and there is a sinful anger. And if our wills are aligned with God, we will have a righteous anger. We will be disgusted at the evil in this world. There, there are th- certain things in this world you ought to be, you ought to loathe and be disgusted. You ought to hate. Calvin once again explains. He comments on this verse and he says, Our attachment to godliness must be inwardly defective if it does not generate an abhorrence of sin, such as David here speaks of. If that zeal for the house of the Lord which he mentions elsewhere burn in our hearts, it would be an unpardonable indifference to silently look on when his righteous law was violated, nay, when his holy name was trampled upon by the wicked. There is no middle ground with God. There's no riding the fence. There's there's no double agents. You're either with him or you're against him. God hates evil. He hates the wicked. He hates sin. Yet, in Ezekiel 18.23, he says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God hates sin. He hates the 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 wicked, but he does not take pleasure in destroying his own creation. His desire is that they would all turn from their sin, that they would turn from him. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And David, being overcome by the glory of God, affirming his attributes and thereby aligning his thoughts and will with God's, also affirms his holy character. Isaiah says in Verse, chapter 45, verses 20 and 24. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near to God, together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him co- shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. God is calling his enemies to himself. He acknowledges the evil in this world, and he hates it. Yet, with him, there is steadfast love. With him, there is forgiveness. So, in swearing allegiance to God, we acknowledge the hatred and the evil in this world. We acknowledge God's judgment, but we also acknowledge his mercy and call sinners to repent and believe. If you're here this morning and you and, and you are unsure of where you stand, your relationship with God, if, if you are here and you hear these thoughts about the omniscience of God, knowing every thought and every minute detail about you, and if you um, understand that he has created you, you and formed and, you and ordained every part of your life, and he is all powerful and he hates the wicked, and you do not understand where you stand with him, know this, that 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 God will judge the wicked. He will judge those who are not in Christ, and, and He will condemn every careless word, every evil thought will come into judgment, every lie, every sin, every ill motive, because He is perfect in His justice. Yet he is also perfect in his mercy and his steadfast love and his compassion and his grace. And he shows that on the cross of Christ that the one who is perfect was made sin, that those who were sinful would be made like him and would receive his righteousness. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He is the one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And he is the one that calls out, come to me, all the ends of the earth. Come to me and, and be saved. Let the wicked forsake his way and the, and the evil man his, his, his wicked thoughts. And come to me and be saved and I will show compassion on him. Christ is ready with open arms. And as David sees the wickedness in the earth and he, he sees the greatness and the glory of God, he understands his, the own wickedness of his heart and he says, search me, O God. Search me. You have searched me, past tense, and now I'm asking you to search me, present tense. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Just as Psalm 1 says, there are two ways in this world, two people, two paths to go down. David is saying that there are two ways a grievous way and a way of everlasting life. And he is saying, Show me any old sinful way, any old grievous way, and lead me in the way of everlasting. He, he's saying, I don't even know my own thoughts and my own wicked thoughts, but Lord, you know all things and so search me, expose me, show me what is not pleasing to you and help me to repent, to turn, to turn to you that I may walk in your ways and follow after you and honor you and be pleasing to you. And this is fitting given this day in this service that we would examine ourselves to see whether we are not in our in, in the faith that we would test ourselves that we would examine our hearts as we come to the lord's table isaac watts wrote a hymn about this psalm and in it he says lord search my soul try every thought though my own heart accuse me not of walking in a false disguise I beg the trial of thine eyes. Doth secret mischief lurk within? Do I indulge some unknown sin? Oh, turn my feet whenever I stray and lead me in thy perfect way. As we consider these words of David, who God is and our relationship with him, let us examine ourselves in light of God's perfections, of his holiness, of his character. Let us examine ourselves in light of our sinfulness, our weakness, and our humanity, and what Jesus Christ has done to redeem and reconcile a sinful people to a holy God. And let us not eat the bread nor drink the cup in an unworthy manner. Father, We thank you for your words. We thank you for your works. We thank you for your person, for your holiness, for your character, for your steadfast love, for your mercy, for your compassion, for your grace, all displayed perfectly in the cross of Christ, who bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And Lord, we proclaim that wonderful truth now as we come before you in your table. In Christ's name we pray, amen.